We begin a new sermon series today. I don't know about you, but there have been times when I was tempted to think of the early Christian church as the golden age of the church. In my mind, I kind of minimized the problems they had. I thought, oh, you know, everything was wonderful. They had miracles. Life was easier then than it is today. Not. It wasn't. In fact, there hasn't been a time since the doors closed to the Garden of Eden that the brokenness of sin hasn't affected people's lives every day in very real ways. Now, looking at then and now, in some ways, the situation of the early church is similar to ours. They had multiple religions and multiple philosophies in their culture, and so do we. They had pressures both outside the church and inside the church. But for many Christians then, I believe it was harder to be a Christian than it is in the United States today. You see, Christianity was very different from the general religious practice of the day. And in, in general, people were, I think, more religious. Part of Western culture is that we are becoming more secular, non-religious. Well, back then with other religions, except for Judaism, Judaism and Christianity, you worshipped the God or gods of your choice, and there were dozens to choose from, but you also acknowledged all of the other gods. And here's part of what made things different. Religion and worship for many people was a daily part of their life. From what we understand of history, in, in many places, when you went into a home, whether it was yours or someone else's, you were expected to offer a little pinch of incense to the household god. But there weren't just household gods, there were business gods, there were city gods, and there was also emperor worship. Christianity comes along, now Judaism had already been there a long time, and it was understood this is a, a cultural, uh, ethnic group of people, they're different, they have their own religion, gave them kind of a pass. Christianity comes, and it's going across cultures and ethnicities and everything else and Christianity says you may only worship God the one true God with a capital G all these other gods lowercase you don't worship them and you don't worship Caesar either and emperor worship was growing if you remember if you think about it the Roman Empire was this group of very different people forced together by the Roman army or threat of the Roman army to stay together and emperor worship happened to be a way to have everybody have something in common. But it wasn't allowed. And this Christian belief that there's only one God, you cannot worship all the others, was offensive to pretty much everybody else. And so there was persecution. It was sporadic more at the beginning, but it, it increased. There was another similarity between them, people then, and us. People back then are like we are today because basically as people we don't change. That means that they had the same kinds of hopes and dreams that we have, the same kinds of fears and brokenness, the Bible calls sin. And in the book of Revelation, in the first chapters, Jesus dictated seven letters to different Christian churches in what is modern-day Turkey. And these letters are what, we're, what we are going to be looking at in our sermon series. In each of these letters, Jesus spoke about the dangers that each of the churches faced. Now remember, churches are made up of people. The church isn't the building. It's the people that meet in the building. And the common, uh, the, the, the dangers that Jesus talked about were common to them all. 
Then Jesus put these letters in the Bible for all churches to read. And it's a good thing we have them because you and I face the same dangers today. Because these dangers are spiritual and they are part of being human. Now when you look at the seven letters, you will see that there Jesus follows a pattern. He begins by speaking about himself. Jesus then assesses each church. He talks about the good and the bad. Jesus gives a correction to each church. Often it starts with the word repent. There he's talking about turning back or start doing again something you did before. And Jesus ends with a promise. The first letter is to the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was the most important city in western Turkey in its day. It was a major trading city. Whenever you talk about trade, think money. There's a lot of money flowing through the city. It had a temple to Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So in, by its standards, it was magnificent building. But Ephesus also had a reputation from its own people for low morals and violence. If you've read in, through the book of Acts about Paul and his trips, when he is in Ephesus, there's a riot that occurs, and he didn't start it. Ephesus also became a major center for emperor worship. Well, God used Paul to start the church in Ephesus, and people's lives were changed dramatically as they came to faith in Christ. Paul wrote a letter to the church. We call it the book of Ephesians, and it's an encouraging, it's one of the most encouraging letters that Paul wrote to a church. And so he wrote it apparently at a time when the church was doing well in many ways. But things did not stay well. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is on one of his trips, and he's passing by Ephesus, and he speaks to the elders at the church at Ephesus for the last time in person. He calls them together, he speaks to them, and he warns them. He warns them that there would be people coming from outside the church that would come in and they would act like wolves. And he also warned them that from within the church, some people would twist God's truth. So remember these warnings as we read Jesus' letter to the church at Ephesus. Remain seated. Let's read together from the screen, Revelation 2, verses 1 to 7. Let's read together. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's begin with Jesus' statement about himself. Jesus says that he holds the seven stars in his hand and he walks among the seven lampstands. Now we're told in the book of Revelation that the seven stars represent the seven angels of the churches. We don't know if this means actual angels, spiritual beings. The word angel also means messenger, so we don't know if he's referring to the pastors of those churches. We're also told in Revelation that the seven lampstands represent the seven churches. So Jesus says he holds the seven stars in his hand. This gives us a picture of Jesus' authority over the churches. See, the Christian church is Jesus. It belongs to him. He bought us, bought the church with his own blood. And he does have authority over us. Remember that the church is not the building. It's the people that meet in the buildings. And when we say that Jesus has authority, he has authority to tell us how to live. And he does tell us how to live. Then when Jesus says that he walks among the seven lampstands, it's a picture of Jesus being with his churches. See, Jesus promises his presence, his care, and his protection. But when we talk about protection, it's not necessarily how you and I think of protection. I think we normally think, well, protection means no problems or only small ones. Nothing big, nothing's going to interfere or cause trouble. Well, look at the New Testament. Look at history. Look at your own experience, and what you will see is that Jesus does allow bad things to happen to Christians. We know from history that for some of these Christians that Jesus is writing to that end up being persecuted. Some lost their jobs. Some lost property. Some were put in jail. And some were killed. But two things to remember. First, their eternal destiny in heaven with God was secure. I don't know about you, but there's been times when I thought, okay, God, great, my eternity is, is covered, but right now I'm pretty miserable. Okay, can you do something about it? Well, that takes us to point number two. God never abandoned them. Think of Psalm 23 and what David says about God being his shepherd, and where does God lead him at times? Both to the pastures and the, and the water where it's peaceful and pleasant, but also through the valley of the shadow of death, where it's hard and dark and fear is all around you and things are uncertain. God's there with you there. God was with them. God is with us in all of these circumstances. Now think with me for just a minute about all the different kinds of Christian churches that we have, that we've had in history and we have today. A few of them are large, thousands of members. A few churches, especially when you think about all the churches around the world, Christian churches, are rich. Many are small. In our denomination, the PCA, over 80% of the churches have 100 members or less. Many churches don't have a lot of money. They're poor. Some people in those churches are educated. Some aren't. Some are in the churches are in the city. Some are rural in the country or the suburbs. A few are respected, and some are persecuted. 
I think of the pastor that, of the church that my parents attended a number of years ago. He was bivocational because he was pastoring a small country church, and that church didn't have enough members in the church to pay him a full salary and benefits. So he worked at the local college during the week, and he pastored on the evenings and the weekends. My point in showing you that list and going through this is that the churches around the world today, and you look at the churches through history, they're not all just like us. Yet it's so easy for us to think, oh, this, this is how I've experienced church. In fact, this is how I've experienced church most of my life. So I'll, sure, everybody else is the same. No. Differences. But it is good to remember that a Christian church of whatever kind, big, small, rich, poor, whatever situation, is made up of people that have been rescued by God and are being transformed by God. That was true in Ephesus when this letter was being written. It's true for us today. Well, let's look at, at the letter and the list of things, how Jesus assesses the church at Ephesus. And when you look, <clears throat> excuse me, look at the list of the good things that he says, it's a pretty impressive list. He says, I know your works. He says, I know your toil, that is your work and your effort. I know your patient endurance. Now, you, you get the idea that patience and endurance comes up several times, that this is a part of them living in the city they live in and the culture they live in. He says, I know that you cannot bear those who are evil. You have attested, you've tested apostles, think teachers, because they have a good number of traveling teachers in that day. Religion was and still is a, a way to make money if you want to have a living. They had these traveling teachers. The, church, the Christians at the church at Ephesus tested them checked what these people were saying against what they knew God had said and those that were teaching falsehood they rejected he goes on again you're enduring patiently you're bearing up you have not grown weary and at the end he says you hate the work of the Nicolaitans now we don't have we have very little information about the Nicolaitans from history we just haven't found many documents that help us understand but what we do know is this. It's a group that influenced some in the Christian church. Very possibly, they promoted sensuality. Their, their message was, God wants you to please yourself and indulge yourself. I think we've all heard that in various forms, not necessarily with God, but to go after that. And there's no question that what they taught was a distortion of God's truth because God said he hated what they were doing. And then we know that they showed up in some other churches. Now, not stated directly in this list, but implied is here is a church that is preaching and teaching the truth. Here is a church that is standing for the truth. And again, we see that this is in a culture contrary and growing more hostile to them. And so you look at the list and it looks good and it is good. And you could look at this list and say, shouldn't every church look like this? And the answer is yes, we should, but Jesus has something against them. And whatever it is that he has against them, and we're going to look at it, it has tainted everything else. That list of good, it is now all tainted because of what's missing. So it's not a small thing. 
that is missing. He says, Jesus says, I have this against you. You have abandoned, now notice who's doing the, the work here. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You've got the right doctrine. You have the right teaching. You generally have the right practice. Well, what's this love that you've abandoned? What is this? In our Sunday school class, we're going through the Ten Commandments. The first commandment out of the ten. Jesus says, you shall have no other gods before me. And when you put that in a positive form, Jesus is saying, put God first in your life. And then remember how Jesus summarizes all of the Old Testament law. I just saw a billboard this week at a church with the, the way that we often shorten it. It said, love God, love others, pass it on. Well, Jesus said, basically, love God, love others, but he actually said more than that. He said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So these Ephesian Christians still loved God in some way. They hadn't stopped loving God, but they weren't loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Something had shifted. Their, their love had shifted somehow. They had let their hearts be drawn away. And you and I do the same thing. We'll come back to this in just a minute. Then Jesus gives his remedy. Three things he tells them to do. Remember, repent, and do the works you did at first. Now, we don't catch the sense of the command to remember in the English, but you do in the Greek. It's not just a one-time remember. It's keep on remembering. Remember continuously. And then when Jesus tells them to repent, he's saying that in some way the Christians in that church had turned away from Jesus. Somehow they had turned away from agape love. And when he commands them to do the works they did at first, I believe he wants them to return to undivided devotion to God. So remember, repent, do the works you did at first. Today you could call that spiritual renewal. And every one of us needs it. Then Jesus gives a warning. He says, if you won't, if you will not repent and remember and do the works you did at first, then Jesus said he's going to remove their lampstand. And that is not, again, a small thing. It shows how serious the problem is of the, this abandoned love that they've done. Because when Jesus says he's going to remove the lampstand, what he's saying is he's going to remove his spirit from that church family. Christians aren't going to lose their relationship with God. Just as in the Old Testament, the, the Spirit of God left the temple, the Spirit of God is going to leave the church. The organization, the building, the structures and everything will still be there, but the spiritual life will be gone. It'll fade. And this has happened and is happening in denominations and in churches today, and it can happen to any church. Now, even though we have some indication from church history, from some letters that, that church leaders wrote not too long after this letter to Ephesus, and we get the indication that Ephesus was okay at that point, none of the seven churches have continued through to today. 
then, then Jesus gives a uh, promise. To anyone who listens and responds rightly, he will grant those who conquer to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. And that's a figurative way to say, Jesus is saying, you're going to have eternal life in heaven. But just remember this. The security of our relationship with God isn't based on our performance. It isn't based on how well we hold on to God. It's based on God claiming us and holding on to us. So let's come back to this problem. What does it mean to t when Jesus says you've abandoned the love that you had at first? God made all of us to be lovers, which means we are always loving someone or something. Not a question of if, but who or what. And to be clear, you and I can love many people and many things simultaneously. But when God made us, he designed us for him to be at the top of the list, for God to be first priority in our lives. But in our selfishness and our sin, we turn away, we try to put anything, a job, a career, um, a house, making money, success, pleasure. We put all kinds of things, even little bitty things like the last cookie in the cookie jar, the favorite spot on the couch that goes to the top of the list. And we've pushed God out. So the first of the seven dangers, and that's the, that's the series title uh, for this sermon series, because every, every letter refers to a danger that, uh, that is there for the church. First of the seven dangers is cold, or you could call it loveless orthodoxy. It's a fancy way of saying you're, quote-unquote, doing what is right, but you're not loving God rightly. You and I are doing what is right, doing the right things without loving God rightly. Now, when I say that, I'm hoping, wondering if somebody thought of 1 Corinthians 13, 1, where Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And he goes on and gives two more examples. And I, I will tell you, I know this is a true statement, but it doesn't really hit me that much. But something did. God brought something into my life about two weeks ago, another devotional that did hit me. And the writer said this, a person can read their Bible every day and read through the Bible every year. And I can tell you from personal experience, that takes commitment to do it. A person can have perfect Sunday attendance can give their tithe and offerings. So they're giving more than 10%. They're giving to the church and to missionaries and Christian organizations. A person can be a Bible expert. And you look at this list and you realize this is a lot like the list for the church at Ephesus. These are all good things. But there's an and. You and I can do all of these things and still live for ourselves. We can still not focus on God's kingdom. Is it there? Yep. You can see I made it big and underlined it so you can catch it. And we can focus on, on not, we can miss God's kingdom because we take a life and we shrink it down to me and my desires. I read that and I thought, ouch. 
Because that's me. I know that's me at times. And I know from the Bible it's you at times as well. And this struggle, this, this, this difference here, if you're a Christian, it either is or should be a struggle for you every day. Because those things, that's not the whole list of, of what we ought to be doing. But the idea is, the struggle is to do what is right with a right heart. And I think that's at the core of Jesus' letter to the church at Ephesus. Doing what is right with a right heart. But for all of us at times, this, this isn't a struggle at all because we are focused on our desires first and not on God, even though, you'll notice me doing this again and again, quote-unquote, we're doing the right things. You see, it is so easy, for example, to focus on the right truth and forget people. And without truth, or, or, or with truth, sorry, if we're focused on truth, but we're, we don't have self-giving, others-focused love, which is agape love, then it's so easy for that truth to become a club to beat on other people. But there's something else that happens as well. You see, truth without agape love, truth without this self-giving, others-focused love isn't really truth. It isn't pure truth anymore. Because it has been shaped by some other agenda. It has been distorted by some other set of values. And so it's not really truth anymore. We call it, call it truth, but it's not. And in the same way, love, when we talk about love without truth shaping it and directing it, isn't agape love. Because it's also been changed. God's love and his truth go together and you cannot separate them. You can't pull them apart. And here's one of the dangers for us. And it's part of church culture that tells us, do the right things. But as we are focusing on doing the right things, and it can be just so subtle that we can say, well, I'm trying to do all the right things, but I'm looking at these people, and they sure aren't. And this little, little voice starts creeping up. I am better than they are. Now, I wouldn't say that out loud. I sure wouldn't say it to their face, but I'm thinking it. Or the other way that this can get twisted is I'm thinking, and I know I've done this for sure, God is happy with me today because I read my Bible. He's happier still because I read my Bible and I prayed. And I did whatever is on that list of right things. And all of a sudden, I've taken my relationship with God and made it something that I earned. And I've distorted what God has given us. We're being called to do the right thing with the right heart. And this is, a, this is a struggle for us. Because remember I talked in the prayer confession, the ugly us, ugly me? It's with us always. And so doing the right thing with the right heart is a, is a problem for us. And there's a sense in which it can actually be becoming harder. And, and the temptation to want to use the truth as a club and, and to look down on others can be a temptation because our culture is moving further and further away from God. The other part of this is that you and I don't see our failure in this on our own because sin is self-blinding. 
And so we can move into, we can just switch into this way of thinking just so fast. And that's why the sermon title, Where's the Love? That's the problem. Now let's come back to Jesus' remedy, his correction. He says, remember from where you've fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. So remember. Think with me for just a minute. What do you and I, if we, if we see our, look at ourselves the way God speaks to us from his word, the Bible. What do you and I deserve from God? We were made by God. We were made to respond to God's love with love, to focus on him, and we turn away. We disobey, we rebel. So we deserve God's just punishment. Not just for the wrong things that we do and say, which we do every day, but also for our very selfish nature, rebellious nature, because that's where all this bad stuff comes from. And in light of all that, in light of that's what we deserve, God offers forgiveness and reconciliation. And don't forget this one. God pursues us. He doesn't say, here's the truth. Now, come and get it. You, you work hard enough and get up here, all right, I'll accept you. He doesn't do that. He comes after us and pursues us. So what should our response be to this kind of love and mercy? Thanks and praise and delight and gratitude and obedience and our commitment and loyalty because God has committed himself to us. Now, that's what we ought to be remembering. How many opportunities do you and I have to remember this? We have opportunities every day, all through the day. Every time the Spirit of God reminds us that we've turned away, and every time the Spirit of God reminds us of how God loves us and cares for us. He calls us to remember. Continuously remember ugly me and the amazing, beautiful love of God that he shows us. Now, what about repent? Martin Luther said that the Christian life is a life of repentance. And everybody just goes, hmm, what does that mean? I grew up in the church, and I used to think that repent means for me to feel sorry for what I've done. And I knew I did things wrong pretty much every day. Well, who wants to feel sorry and feel bad every day all through the day? Not me. Well, it, it does involve being sorry for what we've done wrong, but there's so much more. I'd like you to think of repentance as turning back to God. You see, God designed us, our, our church motto, side by side. God designed us to live life side by side with God. Well, what do we do in our own selfishness? We turn away, say, I'll be back, God. I got this thing over here I want to do first. And we turn away from God. And that can be for just a moment when I just kind of, you know what? You better get off my spot on the couch, bud. Or you're going to get it. It can be just for a moment. It, we can turn away and say, you know what, God? My, I, I really want to get my career where I want it to be, and then I'll come back. And so a person can walk away for years in that sense. It can be anything in between. But the point is, when you and I do that, we have 
turned away from God. And God calls us to repent. And what he wants us to do is turn back to God. And if you understand that picture, that you and I naturally turn away, we're t- at least we're tempted to turn away by many things, and God calls us to turn back, now what Martin Luther says makes sense. Every time I turn away, he's calling me to turn back. And knowing, not that he's going to beat on me, but that he's chosen to love me and forgive me. And not only that, but that he's going to change us as well and not leave us where he found us. Repent. Before that, remember. And then do the first works. And I believe that refers to us living life this undivided devotion I mentioned earlier, doing the right thing with the right heart that comes from remembering and repenting. God's calling us to listen to him, to follow him. Jesus gives us the picture of his own life where he tells people, and here I'm paraphrasing, I I don't make up my own agenda. I listen to God, my Father. What he tells me to do, I am very glad to do. In fact, it's, it's like food for me to obey God and to follow him. That's what he's calling us to. So remember, repent, and do the first works. You and I can't do this on our own. It's not a matter of gritting our teeth and trying harder. Our hope and our only hope is Jesus. The spirit that he gives us his love that he gives us, and then the, the love that he works in us and through us to others. So as you're listening today, please don't check the box. Yep, good sermon, Mark, and just drop it. Make today the first day of a new relationship with God. Ask God, would you work in me, God? Would you help me, God, to be honest about ugly me? Would you help me to remember all the good that you tell me of the ways that you love us and care for us. Would you help me every time I turn away to turn back? Would you help me to live out of this relationship so that more and more I'm doing the right thing with the right heart? And as you're asking God that, begin to look at your life and say, okay, God, show me where I can add remembering and repenting. So it becomes a daily, moment-by-moment part of my life. And then add a devotional if you don't already have one. One that's going to feed this remembering. That's going to remind you every day of God's truth. His love for us, His care, His power, His gifts, His presence. Remind us of all of this. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this letter to the church at, the, at Ephesus. I thank you for the reminders of your truth about Jesus, about the dangers that we face. Lord, I thank you for the beautiful way in which uh, your word fits together so well. Lord, would you give us a hunger first just to ask you for help, for you to work in our lives, Give us a desire to remember and to repent, to turn back to you when we turn away. 
Lord, we thank you that you will do this and you will delight in doing this because you've told us you've committed yourself to work in our lives and then to work through us in the lives of others. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to respond with a song.
Now we move to our time of praises and prayer. Um, we have a, a praise from Thomas Eddy saying, Praise the Lord, my post-transplant recovery is going well. Um, also, a prayer request for Summer Bible Camp and Testify. Um, a couple of these, that they will share the, share the grace of God, that people will grow in God's grace, that people will come to know Jesus as their Savior, that the teens will love others, and that children will share the gospel with their families, and that Summer Bible Camp and Testify will be safe and fruitful. Let's go before God in prayer. Heavenly Father, holy and almighty God, we thank you. Um, we thank you for, for helping uh, Thomas Eddy, um, that his transplant recovery is going well, Father. We, can, we pray that um, his continued recovery will continue to go well, Father. I also pray for, for Summer Bible Camp and Testify. Father, I pray that um, all the teens that are participating in Testify will learn to love others. They will have a heart of service. Father, I also pray that um, your gospel will be shared, um, not only in Testify, but with Summer Bible Camp as well, that your gospel will be obvious, and that those who know you will grow in your grace, and those who do not know you will come to saving faith in you, Father. I also pray for the safety of everything that's going on this week, and that it will be fruitful to you, Father. In your name we pray. Amen. Now may you grow Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Just